You know, the, um, probably the last 20 or 30 years, uh, our culture has become very, uh, much more transparent, much more open. And so it's kind of, it's kind of, an, it's kind of uh, subjects that maybe weren't easily spoken over in the past are so now. I mean, we can talk about anger and we can talk about lust and we can talk about bitterness and we can really kind of, you know, kind of expose ourselves more. But one area that, that we're still kind of closed off to is, is this idea of materialism and money. This kind of conversation makes everybody a little squeamish and uncomfortable. What's going to be said? How's it going to hit me? But, but it's an important topic, uh, as we're going to see. But let me just start with, you know, since Ray kind of prayed, prayed that our hearts would be exposed, let me ask you some questions and you can wrestle with them. Uh, how much uh, do you desire newer and better things? I mean, how much time is invested for you considering the things you don't have? Or, or, or how much time is invested in the management of a portfolio or, or trying to take steps to get a promotion? I mean, how much time do you look at catalogs and advertising and different things that you would want one day? How much time is invested in that? I, I think Jesus knows this truth, that people who are striving to be faithful are going to struggle with materialism and wants. He knows it. And he's going to give us some divine instruction here regarding how we are to relate to the things of this world, the good things of this world, the nice things of this world. In fact, in our passage, he's going to give us really three barometers or kind of some diagnostics for us to assess ourselves and measure ourselves. How are we relating to these good gifts that God has given to us? Now, you remember in the first half of chapter 6, uh, Jesus has given us instructions on how we relate to the world around us. In other words, uh, that we are, not to, uh, we are not to display our spirituality before people. Here's how to avoid hypocrisy. Well, now in the second half of chapter 6, he's going to speak about how we relate to the things of this world. And I'd ask you to pay attention because according to one author, 15% of Jesus' teaching is on money and things. It's more than heaven and hell combined. So it's a significant issue. It's a soft spot for us. And so as we go through this, I want you to think of assessment and correction. We're going to assess ourselves as to where we are in relationship to these different things in this world. And then we're going to look at correction. In other words, what what does the Lord instruct us to correct so that we get in line as members of the kingdom? as children who have a heavenly father. So read read with me, if you will, Matthew 6. We'll just read 19 to 24. 19 to 24 of Matthew chapter 6. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? 
No one can serve two masters, for he, either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot, you cannot serve God and money. Okay, so, so the first, this first test, this first assessment, if you will, how we relate to the things of this world uh, is in regard to what we treasure. Uh, what objects do you desire most? Okay, Jesus gives us some clear instruction. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Now, there are treasures on earth. Now, uh, I want to make sure and be clear on this, because you notice through the whole Sermon on the Mount, there's a lot of black and white, black and white, black and white. Those are hard to preach with balance. It's easy to go to the kind of the, the polar opposites, but it's hard to preach in the middle. So let me say what it's not saying. I, I don't think he's saying this, that possessions are bad or wealth is bad. You shouldn't save up money for the future. You shouldn't, you shouldn't provide for your family. I don't think he's saying those things. Um, I don't think he's saying that you have to divest yourself of everything. Uh, the scriptures call us to, actually, I think the, the scriptures call for us to walk with private property. I think that's implicit in the command to not steal. If everything was common property, there'd be no stealing. I, I think we're, the scriptures call us to provide for our families. and says if we don't, we're worse than an infidel. I think the scriptures call us to save for retirement. I think the scriptures call us to enjoy, actually, the good gifts that we do have. First Timothy, we're, we're called to exercise gratitude to God for these things. So I don't think he's calling for us to divest, to just give it all up. Say, hey, I don't want any treasures on earth. I just want them all in heaven, so I'm not going to pursue anything. I don't think he's saying that. I think what he's going after here, and we've seen this throughout the Sermon on the Mount, is this idea of it's not about possessions per se, it's about my attitude toward the possession. So in other words, Jesus said, you've heard it said, don't commit murder, but I say to you, don't get angry. So in other words, he's going at the heart here. He's going at the attitude of possessions. And the reason I say that is because it says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Now, in, in the Greek language, the word do not lay up is treasure. So he's saying, don't treasure the treasures of this earth. In other words, don't treasure them. Don't, don't set your affections upon them. Don't need them so much. Don't put great value upon these things of the earth. That's what he's calling for us not to do. So here's how it would look in life. You know, the person that he'd be condemning, I think, would be one, would be like a miser, a, a stingy person. They, they, they want to hoard it up for themselves and thinking that in that, they're going to have a degree of security and comfort. Or maybe talking about the person who's the, more of the materialist, that they're always wanting more and more, that they're always looking at the next thing, and that they find in the things that they're getting, whether it be things or promotions or whatever, that in that is joy and satisfaction and achievement and fulfillment. Or, or the extravagant one, the one that lives very, very nicely and comfortably without any regard for those around them. I think that's what he's going after. And, and the reason he goes after these is because he cares for us. He gives us reasons right in the text. And, and please, don't fail to appreciate that he would give us reasons. He's the giver of the law. He doesn't need to furnish us reasons why he says what he does, but he does. It's very gracious of him. And the first reason he gives us is simply is this. It's foolish because it doesn't last. It's transient. It's temporal. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. 
I mean, there's the moth and rust destroy. The word destroy is decay or corrode or erode. Thieves break in and steal. Of course, they didn't have banks per se as we understand it. They'd put their valuables in a lockbox and maybe bury it in the house or in the wall of the house. Thieves could break in. Dig, in Greek literally, it says dig in to steal it. They've got to dig through the wall of a, of a house to get it. He's saying that they don't last. They're transient. They're temporal. Now, folks, you know this. I mean, you do know this. So right on Durant Road, we have a landfill. And the landfill, of course, we piled it up. Now they have grass growing and a, a nice little walkway up there, and the kids call it Trash Mountain. You can go up to the top, right, and you can see downtown Raleigh on a clear day. Now, I call it Treasure Mountain. It's all of our treasures that we needed to have at one point, filled that place up, and now we have a big hill, a hill so big we can see downtown Raleigh. You know that these things don't last. But it's not just possessions I'm talking about. Uh, your positions... Your achievements, they don't last. The, the records that we set today will be broken. The jobs that we occupy that we're so necessary for, they'll be filled by another. I mean, all those things are going to just pass away. How many people will remember your accomplishments and deeds in 25 years? In 50 years? Will it be more than 10 Will we not just be forgotten in many ways? And yet, and yet we live for these things. I need to have this promotion. I, I need to be recognized for this accomplishment. Why? It's so transient. Not just that, but our bodies. I, I mean, these physiques that we want to keep up, the importance that we place on our physique. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the London preacher in the mid-20th century, wrote this. He says, the most perfect physique will eventually give way to age spots, wrinkles. The most beautiful countenance will become, as it were, ugly. We know that. If you're 55 and above, you know Elizabeth Taylor, you see at the beginning, stunningly beautiful. At the end of life, not so. And you can take a host of beauties in this generation. Give them 20 years. Give them 20 years. But we, we don't like to let go. Do you realize that 25% of cosmetic surgery is done for people over 75. What are we thinking? <laughs> I, I don't know what they're thinking. But, but the truth is clear. The first reason is it's transient. It's temporal. The stuff that we lust after will not be here. But not only that, it's illogical because the joy that it promises never fulfills. You know that. It, by nature, it cannot fulfill you. You're spiritual beings. <clears throat> you cannot be satisfied with physical things. It, it, in fact, it, here's how we know it doesn't last. The continual need that you have for more and more and newer and newer shows you that the last round of things didn't serve you. What you needed five years ago, really needed, is it still at that level? Is it still satisfying you? Is it still giving you joy? I mean, I'm not saying that these things don't produce a measure of joy. They do. I mean, to drive a car that's functioning well, have a nice new outfit, I mean, that's all not wrong with the joy. I want to thank God for it. I just don't want to find more joy in that than I can get. In fact, uh, Jack Whitaker was a man who won the largest undivided Powerball distribution. <clears throat> and uh, made a lot of money. And uh, supposedly, after the first number of years, he was arrested twice for drunk driving, 
thrown in jail for assault, forced into rehab. They lost all their friends because the ones they had were, they felt like were kind of soaking off of them. They couldn't trust who their new friends were. And here's the words of his wife. She said, I wish I tore the ticket up. I wish I tore it up. I mean, their life, and if you follow a pattern of these lives that are just weighted down with every, if we just had 100 grand, then we'd be out of trouble. Or if we had whatever, then I'd be in, then I'd be in better shape. And yet, it doesn't produce the joy that you think you want. Folks, you, you, you have to think through these issues. They don't just disappear. They don't just disappoint. Here's the danger. They delude us. They delude us from remembering that we are children of God. Last week I talked about the posture of prayer, about how we appear before God, and God is seen as our Father in heaven. He's loving, he's omniscient, he's all-powerful. Pursuing treasures on earth moves us from that identity as a child of God with a heavenly Father who will care for me, and he moves us into being materialists. And we forget who we are, We begin to live for the moment, and we begin to lose our identity. And here's the warning Jesus gives to the church at Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. Here's a church. It was thriving with the name of Christ. Wealth, materialism, and, and health became part of that church. And here's what he says. He says, you say I am rich. I have acquired wealth, and I don't need a thing. Here's the words of Jesus. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. It it twists us into becoming materialists. We begin to define ourselves by what we have and not who we have in God. So, So this is kind of the warning for us. He says, don't store for yourselves treasures on earth. There are many good things in this life. I want you to enjoy them, and I want you to thank the giver as David prayed. But when we begin to shift our weight, of care and rest on those things. Very, very foolish. Jesus has a, has a contrast for us. He says this, Do not store for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. He's not giving us a new way to get to heaven. He's not saying if you just give your money away, if you serve the Lord, you can get into heaven. He's not doing that. You remember at the very beginning of the, of the Sermon on the Mount, it says, blessed are the poor, blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who are poor and aware of their sin. They are going to receive the kingdom of God. So what he's saying here, though, is storing up for yourselves treasures in heaven. He doesn't define them for us. He doesn't explain what these treasures are. I can assume it's you and I participating in the new heavens and new earth. I can assume it's treasure in Christ and all of his glory and, and being so thankful to him for all that he has done for us. The, the, the Son of God with pierced hands and feet and side and thanking him that he has made us his treasure. So I I can see that being part of it, but he doesn't explain the detail. I think because the focus is on their durability and their permanence and their stability. Jesus says in Luke 12, a a parallel passage, he says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So, So if you are part of the flock of God, you now have his kingdom. And all that that is. He says, sell your possessions, give it to the poor, provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, 
a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. So he's saying because he's giving you the kingdom, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. In other words, use your money for the purposes of God. Use your wealth for the things of God. This is where we want to check ourselves just for a minute. This is where we want to think through and assess where we are. Where is your treasure? So A.W. Tozier gives us these questions. He's this American pastor in Chicago in the mid-20th century. He says, what do you value most? What would you most hate to lose? What do your thoughts turn to most frequently when you're free to think of what we will? So you've got a spare 10 minutes. Where does your mind drift towards? And, and what affords us the greatest pleasure? What, what do you want? And is it of material extract or is it of spiritual? What do you value most? What are you most in fear of losing? Now, folks, the assumption here in the text is you're going to treasure something. You're going to pursue something. You're built to desire things. So what's it going to be? And is it going to have value? Is it going to last beyond your own lifetime? That's the question he's asking us here. We want to we check ourselves and assess ourselves. What would it be for you? You know, it was, um, there was a survey done, and they asked people, if you were given a large sum of money, I think it was $100,000, what's the first thing you would want to do? 31% said fix their house. 30% said education for themselves or their children. Only 2% said we want to give money away. So 98% of the people, charity wasn't even on the radar screen. So what's that reveal about us? What's that show our treasures? If you were offered that, boom, tomorrow you'll have $100,000. What would you do with it? Ask yourself the question and see what is revealed about you. Now, that's the assessment. Now, here's the correction that I think Jesus makes. I think he calls us to repentance and faith. I think he's calling, repentance is the language of the believer. The non-Christian doesn't feel a need to repent because he justifies what he does as legitimate and okay given his surroundings. The believer stands before God and he sees that his heart is out of line with the Father who has saved him. And so he says, I've got got to repent. Repent is to turn. It's to change your mind. It's to feel sorrowful over your actions and say, God, forgive me. You're worth more. As David prayed in Psalm 16, pleasures are at your right hand, not at my right hand. They're at his right hand. And so we repent and we ask for grace. God, give me a vision of your son. Let me dwell on the gospel, the value of Jesus. So Jesus leaves glory, takes upon flesh, lives for us a perfect life so as to please the Father. He then corrals us together, bears our sin and shame and guilt and dies for us that he might draw us back to the Father. Dwell on Christ. Consider him and all that he's done for us. And then consider yourself with a different set of eyes. That you're a pilgrim in this world. The Christian is a pilgrim. The non-Christian is not a pilgrim. This is the home of the non-Christian. But the Christian's a pilgrim and he's just migrating through. And when you're on pilgrimage, when you're going from point A to the home, point B, you're not worried about collecting stuff on the journey. Oh, the stuff on the journey might be helpful and useful in the journey, but the end of the journey is the goal of life. So the pilgrim uses his resources. The pilgrim uses what he has for the betterment of the journey and the end goal. So that's the first assessment that I would ask you to make. 
Assessment and correction. What do you treasure? What do you value? What do you love most? Okay, so Jesus gives us another diagnostic. Look with me at 22 and 23. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? This is a little confusing. This is a little difficult to understand. So let me try to explain it to you. The eye is the lamp of the body, and if the eye is healthy, then light comes in, and supposedly then life is good. If the eye is unhealthy, then light can't get in, and your body is full of darkness. So like a window here. When these windows are clean, then much light comes in. If your windows are dirty, then it prevents light from coming in, and darkness is in. So the issue is, do you have healthy eyes? And what does that mean, even if you do? Well, let's first understand healthy. So to have a healthy eye, the word healthy actually means good, it means single, and it means generous. So it has a range of meanings in Greek. But, you know, we we speak in English, and we have a range of meanings, right? The word board, B-O-A-R-D, board, has a range of meanings. Room and board, it can be food. Chairman of the board can be a leader of other leaders. Um, A six-foot board is a piece of timber. So the context determines what meaning do I take out of the range. Okay, so if this word has good and single and generous, it's put between two passages on money, probably relates to money and generosity. Same thing with evil or bad eye. That bad eye means begrudging or miserly or stingy. You see this in Matthew chapter 20. Do you remember the parable? Jesus sends out the laborers at 9 o'clock in the morning. Jesus, as a landowner, sends out laborers, and he says, hey, you work for me for a day, I'll give you a denarius, one day's wage. Then he sends out men at 12, and at 3, and at 6. They all come back after the day, and they all get paid the same thing. And, of course, they begin to complain. Hey, we're there at 9. Why, why are the guys at 3 getting paid the same as us? And here's what, here's what Jesus says the landowner rebukes these. And says, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye bad or begrudging or miserly because I'm generous? In other words, his point is that those of you who have bad eyes or miserly eyes, your life will begin to be filled with darkness. The light of the knowledge of God's great generosity will not break through into your life. And you will see things from a whole different perspective. You're going to be protective, and you're going to be seeking to guard, and you're not going to share. And your life is going to get darker and darker and darker due to your miserliness. This is the whole point of the Christmas carol. And Charles Dickens, Ebenezer Scrooge, he was a lighthearted, fun-carrying, enjoyable young man. As money began to become his god, you see his whole body begin to crumple over. You, You see this humbug philosophy take over. And you see this darkness in his life, held in comparison to the other family. They had little. They were generous with what they had, and they had light in their life. That's the the good eye. The healthy eye is the generous eye, the one that gives things away, the one that is, is using his possessions for the greater kingdom of God. It's a healthy eye. It's a generous eye. They see things differently. Their life is full of light, the light of God's generosity. And if God can be so great and so generous to us, We are absolutely free to be generous to others. He is our Father. He will care for us. It's not asking for full divestiture of what you have. He's given it to you. But the freedom 
And that's the, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God will invade your life and give you satisfaction and joy. Now, John Wesley, we sang a Charles Wesley hymn today, but John Wesley wrote many hymns and wrote many books. He was a great preacher of the 18th century on both sides of the pond. And uh, he earned 40,000 pounds sterling. He was a very wealthy man. He died with 28 pounds. Why? He gave it all away. He says, make as much as you can, save as much as you can, and give as much as you can. That was his philosophy. He made all that money, he gave it all away. He wouldn't keep it for himself. So, so, so when, he, when he got a raise, boom, it was gone. Now, I'm sure he used much of it or some of it for himself. But I would just encourage you, let's say you get a raise. Is your first thought to increase standard of living or standard of giving? Remember, the one with the generous eye is saying, yes, I need these things. God's providing for me. I'm thankful for it. But what are my opportunities to serve others with it, to extend the kingdom? This is where I want you to check yourselves. How miserly or how generous are you? And if you don't like those two options, why don't you? You don't want to be called miserly, but you're not ready to say that you're generous. We Americans, I don't think we do well in assessing ourselves. You know, there was a, a, another survey done on whether we think we live in the upper class or the middle class or lower class. A big span of people across uh, different spectrums. And only 2% of Americans said that we live, America generally speaking, we're upper class people. Only 2%. Now, I think if you went to African nations, South African, uh, South American nations, I think if you went to Asia, I bet you they might think differently about us. We're assessing ourselves as middle class folks. But compared to the rest of the world, don't know that that would fit. Now, Americans also view themselves as generous people. And uh, I don't know that the data holds that up. Uh, we gave, as a percentage of our income, a greater amount of money at the height of the Depression in 1933 than we do now. That those Christians who would call themselves born again, people that would refer to themselves as born-again Christians, 23% gave zero last year. Zero, not five bucks, zero. That's 23%. The average giving was $649 for the year. That means that if they tithe, they made 6500 bucks last year. So I imagine they're living well. I mean, they're really managing their money well. I mean, who could live at $6,500 here in America? So, so check yourself as to where you are. I'm not looking to... This isn't about a tithing sermon. This isn't about raising money for a building. This is how do you relate to the things that God has given to you? And are you relating properly to it? Is your eye... Generous and healthy, or is it bad? And so this is where you check yourself and you say, okay, this is a good, is my eye generous and, and healthy, or is it, is it bad? And, and if it's bad, then what is the correction? Well, the correction is to repent. To repent to God that we have been miserly or stingy or begrudging with our money. If that fits. We want to repent and ask for grace. God, I want to use what you give me for your kingdom and your glory. Listen to the rebuke the church got in the letter of James. He says this, he says, Now listen, you rich people, 
Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted. Your moss, moss have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you. Those are strong words. Let me just add a few more to them. Paul writes to Timothy. Timothy, you know, is a young pastor. And uh, he's, he's leading a very affluent and educated congregation in the city of Ephesus. So here's how Paul the seasoned pastor preacher instructs Timothy. He says this, he says, command them. So Paul is telling Timothy to command the people in his church. Command them to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may, be, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. A couple things here. I'm supposed to command you now, if I'm listening to Paul, I'm supposed to command you to be rich. To be rich and to be generous. Rich in good deeds and generous with your money. I'm commanding you to do that based upon these words. But here's why the command comes. He says this, you will lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. It will be a firm foundation for the coming age. For the coming age. And he says, so that you may take hold of that life, which is truly life. In other words, how many of you are clinging to life that is not really life? It's a temporary, it's a fake thing. It's not giving you the joy you want. He's saying that there is a life to take hold of that comes through our generosity of the kingdom of God. That's where you have to check yourself. Okay, the third metaphor, the third picture he gives us here. Look with me in verse 24. He says, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. So here he's kind of checking on our allegiance, on, on that which we trust. Now, you can work for two employers. You can do that. I've had seasons of my life where I had to have two jobs and work for two different people. You cannot serve two masters. The nature of slavery is ownership, and ownership doesn't enjoy rivals. So, so there's a singularity about a focus and a life and a service. And, we, and what Jesus is telling us here is you can't do both. It's impossible. You have to serve one or you're going to serve the other. And the reason is, is because you tend to love one and thereby trust one. And that, that one, whichever it is, God or money, begins to be the one that you serve. You become a slave to it. Now, what's interesting about this, I think, is the idea of trust here. You really, you can't serve God or money. The word money, or some of your Bibles have mammon, that root word means to trust in. In other words, Jesus is saying, it's going to be rooted in what you trust. You're going to serve God or money, but the motivation of service is going to be, what do you trust? Do you trust in that which you have in terms of homes and families and positions and retirements? Or are you trusting in the one who has spoken the universe into existence? You haven't seen him, and you, you believe he's there, but you haven't seen him. And so, I, Are you going to trust in that one, in your Father who is in heaven? The temptation that you're going to face today is to compromise. Think that you can do both. You're going to try to hold on to both. And he said, you can't do it. That's the difficult thing with a affluent culture, 
is the tendency is to trust in the things that you have. You know the story when the rich young ruler came to Jesus and wanted to know how he ought to get to heaven. And here's what Jesus said. He says, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And so Jesus said to his disciples, so can you imagine him leaving? And Jesus didn't chase him. Jesus didn't go after him and say, come on, rethink this, rethink this, like you're hearing me try to do. The man left, and we're to assume he never came back. And so Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will the rich person Enter the kingdom of heaven. Why does he say that? You can't be rich and get into the heaven? No, I don't think he says that. It's that love and that trust for possessions and money and things that deludes us from having our trust entirely in a father who has given us a son to save us. So I would ask you to, again, right now, assess your own soul on this issue. What do you trust? What do you love? Where is your loyalty? And is it in the things that you have? Is that where you turn to? Is that where your mind shifts to? Or is it in God? I mean, you, you know, so when you look at your life and you say, where does the bulk of my time and my talents and my treasures go? If, if, there's no, if there's no using of your talents for the greater kingdom of God, if there's little use of your finances for the things of God, if there's, if there's little time given to the things of God, then then please don't feel comfortable. I mean, the warning would be wasted on you. If, if, you were, if you're striving you know, to use your time and your talents and your treasure, then be encouraged and, and be thankful for the grace of God. But I just want you to assess yourselves. The correction is the same as the previous two. Repent. Repent of leaning upon things that cannot support you. Uh, repent of, of failing to appreciate God and all that he is as you've rested and leaned on things of this world. And, and then I, I would ask you, after you repent, to consider the gospel. This, this is where the gospel saves us and saves us and saves us. Uh, consider the gospel, and, uh, and let, let me read to you from 2 Corinthians 8, because Paul references the gospel as a means of encouraging people away from uh, trusting in riches. He says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for our sakes became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. This is what Tim Keller writes about this. He says, This is not some ethical precept. Jesus gave up his treasure in heaven in order to make you his treasure. When you see him dying to make you his treasure, that will make him your treasure. Money will cease to be the currency of your significance and security, and you can be free with what you have. To the degree that you grasp the gospel, money will have little dominion over you. Think on his grace until it changes you into being a generous person. In other words, thinking on the gospel the gospel being that, that God and his Son and the Spirit confer to bring Christ to earth, take on flesh, live for us, of course, bear our sins, 
but live in a way that was so generous. He left the riches of glory. He took on poverty so that we might become rich by his death and resurrection. That meditating on that, grasping that, the affections that you have for that will move you away from finding money to be significant and secure and will move you to him. See, the, the, really the issues of money, the, idol, the idolatry of money and materialism, that's really just a surface idol. The deeper stuff is what it does for you. It makes you feel significant. It makes you feel secure. It gives you a place in society that you want to be. It allows you to dress in a certain way that makes you feel good. Those are the deeper idols that we have. And that, that money is just kind of a, a, a surface idol for. So, so let us repent. Let's take a few minutes. And this is actually, you know, I was going through these ideas with Carol. And she goes, this is why I love Sunday morning. Every Sunday morning you get reminded of things that you need to hear. You've forgotten this. Perhaps this has, has reminded you of, yeah, i got to do that. i got to think through that. And, and just God in his mercy, week after week, you're hit with truth from his word that's that's both assessing or exposing of our hearts, and then there's a place for correction. So I'm going to begin in prayer. Uh, Ray's going to close us at the end of prayer. And I would just ask you, remember from last week, that this is our corporate prayer time. So we're really praying for one another. So, so try not just to think about your immediate needs right now. Those are important to God, and I want you to lift those up. But I want you thinking now, that these issues that I have or that Ray confessed to or that I confessed to in terms of struggling with these issues, I know we all bear them. So let's pray as if we're coming together before the throne of grace for mercy. I'd ask you to pray loudly so we can hear you because you're praying for us. We want to agree with you and pray um, briefly that others may pray. Father, we confess that we have pursued, we have literally lusted after things that we know we're going to throw away. Father, would you forgive us for being so short-sighted? God, give us a hunger for the Son.